Good to greet you. Thanks for all of you who are joining us online. Thanks for joining us this morning. If you got a Bible, go ahead and go to the book of Ecclesiastes and the fifth chapter. That's in the Old Testament, the book of Ecclesiastes and the fifth chapter. As uh, John had just said, this is our annual stewardship series called uh, God, Money, and Me. Uh, last week, we began by talking about breaking down the power of money, and this weekend, we're going to talk about getting a grip on materialism. Because it's football season, let's begin with a football story. This is a fascinating story to me. Back in 1988, Tishomingo High School in Mississippi was playing its rival, Faulkner High School. Tishomingo had an 18 to a 16 lead with seven seconds left in the game. They were 40 yards away from the end zone. And in that situation, most teams would just snap the ball, take a knee, let the clock run out, and win the game. But this was a unique situation for Tishomingo because they were in a three-way tie with two other schools to get into the Mississippi High School State playoffs. And the tiebreaker was such that if they won the game by only two points, the season would be over and they wouldn't advance despite the win. They needed to win the game by at least four points. Their coach was a man named Dave Herbert, and he didn't have enough firepower. He knew his quarterback. He didn't have enough firepower for a Hail Mary pass into the end zone. And so he did the unthinkable. He called a play that made it seem like he was completely out of his mind. He called a play that called for his team to snap the ball, to turn around, and run 60 yards in the opposite direction into the end zone take a knee and give the other team a two-point safety. And the reason why is that that would tie up the game, and when time ran out, they would be forced to go to overtime, which would give Tishomingo a chance to win the game by more than four points. So he set the play into the quarterback, who immediately looked at the sideline like, are you nuts? This is crazy. I mean, just imagine what this would have been like. The team even argued about whether or not they would run the play when they were in the huddle there at the end of the game. But time was running down, and so they broke the huddle, and they ran the play. The quarterback took the snap. He pitched the ball to the running back, who promptly turned around and ran the opposite direction, 60 yards, crossed the goal line, took a knee, and gave the other team a two-point safety. The time had run out, and everyone in the stadium was stunned that this game that was in the hands of Tishomingo was now tied. So what they did was they went to overtime. And the good news is in overtime, Tishomingo scored a touchdown, won the game by seven points, and got into the Mississippi State playoffs that year. It's a true story. And the moral of the story is that sometimes, in order to be successful, you have to do the opposite of what everyone else expects. And that might sound unique to us, but it shouldn't be, because in many ways, that's really the message of the Bible. Back in 2012, a pastor named Craig Groeschel wrote a book that captured the attention of a lot of believers. The book was called Weird. That was the title of the book, Weird. And the tagline was, because normal isn't working. Weird, because normal isn't working. Listen to just a brief excerpt from the book. It's normal to reject God altogether or believe in him while we're living as if he doesn't exist. In churches, normal is lukewarm Christianity, self-centered spiritual consumerism, and shallow, me-driven faith. God has become a means to an end, a tool in our toolbox to accomplish what we want. The majority of people claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny Him. And that's what he says is normal. 
I think primarily in American or Western Christianity. But if that's what's normal when it comes to God, as Christians together, we need to acknowledge the truth that normal isn't working. In fact, say that with me. Normal isn't working. It's not. It's not working, especially when it comes to our lives of faith. Jesus had a similar team, a theme rather, in his teaching. He, he said things that were so countercultural to what was the reality of the day, to what was normal in the day, that it really caused a lot of stir when he began his earthly ministry. Let me give you a couple of examples. When Jesus came into the world, normal was hating your enemies. But Jesus said that you're supposed to do the opposite and love your enemies. In fact, look at these words from Luke 6, 27. Jesus said, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. It was normal to hate your enemies. Jesus said, do the opposite. In Jesus' day, normal was following the crowd. In many ways, things haven't changed today. But Jesus said, you need to do the opposite of that, and you need to choose a different path. He said it like this in the Sermon on the Mount. This is Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Don't walk on the the broad road, the wide road with everyone else, you need to walk on the narrow path. And again, those are just two examples from the life of Jesus. I could give you many, many more. This kind of opposite teaching is found all throughout the Gospels, but not just all throughout the Gospels and the teaching of Jesus. This kind of opposite teaching is found all throughout the Bible. In the world today, people say, follow your heart. Why? Because that's normal. I can't tell you how many times over the years as a pastor, I've heard somebody say something like, well, I'm just going to follow my heart. You know, the heart wants what the heart wants. Let's just follow our hearts. Oftentimes that's in conflict with the teaching of obedience to the scriptures. And so it's normal today to follow your heart. But the Bible says, listen, Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9 the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? If that's what the Bible teaches about the heart, then why is it normal to follow your heart? Are you beginning to see my point? What the world says is normal is oftentimes the exact opposite of what God says. And again, I'm going to say this. Here's what we need to understand as Christians in the world today. Normal isn't working when it comes to matters of faith. Normal isn't working. You know, over the years, I have gotten dozens and dozens of questions. People have asked me, or dozens and dozens of people, rather, have asked me a question about what it means or what it's talking about when the Bible references the unpardonable sin. Are you familiar with that? The unpardonable sin? Matthew chapter 12 and verse 31, Jesus says, uh, and we talked, we covered this uh, several months ago in our Matthew study that we'll rejoin in 2020. But Jesus said that all sins and all blasphemies are pardonable except the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's the unpardonable sin. And people, understandably, will ask me, what does that mean? And I don't have time to go into detail about it, but basically the simple explanation for what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, which is the unpardonable sin, is attributing to Satan the works of Christ. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's the unpardonable sin. And that's a big concern for a lot of people because a lot of people are concerned that maybe they've done something to commit an unpardonable sin. And so that's a concern for them. But here's the question. What about the pardonable sins? How do we feel about those? 
What do I mean by that? And, this, and don't misunderstand me. This, that's not something that's stated that way in, in the Scriptures, that there are pardonable sins like that. But in our Christian culture, there are sins that people commit that we give each other a pass on all the time. And the reason why we give each other a pass on them all the time is, you know why? Because they're, what am I going to say? They're normal. They seem normal. I'm talking about things like gluttony, gossip, unforgiveness. The Bible is very specific and very deliberate in teaching that we are responsible as believers to forgive everyone in the same way Christ has forgiven us. And yet many people refuse to forgive others who have offended them. How about worry? How about worry? Paul writes in Romans chapter 13, the end of the chapter, that anything that does not come from faith is sin. Let me ask you a question. Does worry come from faith? No. And you know what? I would put myself at the top of the list when it comes to that pardonable sin because my life can sometimes be filled and overwhelmed with worry and anxiety, which doesn't come from faith. And yet we, are, we don't talk about those things that much, and we give each other a pass on those things because... While the Bible says that they're sin, the Bible in different places says that every single one of them is a sin, they seem normal. But normal isn't working today. Just think about some of the things that are normal in the world and the culture that we live in today. Political correctness to the point where if you speak any word of disagreement about virtually any social issue or any moral issue in the world today, your word of disagreement is immediately viewed as hate speech. That's become normal in the world that we live in today. How about politicians who call themselves public servants? But it's clear for many of them, not all of them, but for many of them, the interests of the public is the very last thing on their mind in their self-serving careers. How about gender-neutral bathrooms? How about disrespect of authority? How about a country, I'm talking about our country, the United States of America, a country that we love that right now is over $23 trillion in debt. And you know why? Because in our culture today, debt is, what am I going to say? Normal. Well, with that in mind, let's talk about another area of life where normal isn't working for many of us. And that's the way we handle God's money. There's no question that we are a consumer culture, that we consume things as a people in the USA something that's built into our American mindset. We love things, we love houses, we love cars, we love electronics, we love gadgets, we love vacations and experiences and on and on and on. Now having said that, I want you to listen to me very closely because there's a couple of things that I need to say in a follow-up. First of all, there's nothing wrong with any of the things that I just mentioned. There's nothing inherently wrong with, with houses or cars or electronics or gadgets or vacations or experiences, I guess, depending on what the experience is. Each one of them in and of themselves is something that we would call amoral. You know what the word amoral means? The word amoral means without moral quality. It describes something that's neither good nor bad in and of itself. 
And so I don't want you to misunderstand me about that. The other thing is, you know, we have to understand is that there's always going to be economic diversity among us here in the U.S. In other words, there are always going to be the haves and the have-nots. There are always going to be, in our culture, in our country, people who have bigger and better financial capacities than others, which means there are going to be people who appear to pursue the materialism, to pursue the, 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 the things of the world more than others, more than some, and that's something we just have to recognize. That's just the reality of the world that we live in. No matter how many politicians come along and say that we need to change that and we need to make the playing ground equal for everyone, they're always going to be, there's always going to be diversity when it comes to economics. And the Bible even acknowledges that. In First Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17, Paul writes and says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. But he begins by saying, command those who are rich in this present world. That's the reality. That's the reality. That's not going to change. I mean, let's just, let's just uh, imagine that someone with a socialist agenda comes, on, comes along, and all of a sudden, we find ourselves in USA one day with a playing field is equal, economically speaking. Everyone has the same. How much time do you think it'll take before it changes and it reverts back to the way it used to be? Because there are always going to be the haves and there are always going to be the have-nots. That's just the reality of the world. It's foolish to think otherwise. But regardless, friends, of whether you have a little or you have a lot, and that can sometimes be relevant, irrelevant rather, based on how people view things. Regardless of whether you have a little or a lot, the relentless pursuit of things, this materialism that characterizes our culture and oftentimes people in the church is not normal as far as God is concerned. And I'm going to tell you why I say that. If you got your Bibles open to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, I fooled you into thinking we weren't going to read the Scripture together today. But if you've got your Bibles open to Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and you're able, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to use this passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 uh, that reflects words, remember, that were inspired by God. They were written by a man named Solomon, but he was inspired by God because the Bible says of itself that every word in the Bible is inspired. Every word, the literal meaning is God-breathed. God-breathed. Every word of the Scripture came from God. We're going to look at these words inspired by God that tell us the truth about materialism, about the relentless pursuit of more. I'm going to start reading in verse 8. You follow along. I'm going to go down through verse 15. And in my Bible, the heading of this is riches are meaningless. Solomon writes and says, if you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things, for one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Then he goes on to say, whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This, too, is meaningless. He says, as goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet with whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when he has a son, there is nothing left for him. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry 
in his hand. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always ask God to bless the reading and the hearing of his word. I don't have time to do a complete exposition of this text, so let me just focus on some highlights that all would fall under uh, the heading of what we might call the problem with materialism or the problem with the relentless pursuit of more. And I'm not going to do these chronologically either. I'm going to kind of jump around in the text. But I'm going to give you four things uh, that we're taught about materialism in these verses. The first one is this. Write this down somewhere in your notes. Materialism makes you think you never have enough. The relentless pursuit of more makes you think that you never have enough. And we see that in verse 10 where Solomon, and by the way, everybody look up here for a moment. Solomon, Solomon, arguably the wealthiest man that ever lived on the face of the earth. I don't know if you remember this or not, but several years ago, we, we went verse by verse through the book of Ecclesiastes on the weekend. My son Andrew and I preached verse by verse through the book of Ecclesiastes. And there are places in Ecclesiastes that show us just how wealthy Solomon was, and it's unbelievable off the charts. Solomon was someone who literally, when he was alive, had the ability and the resources to buy and pursue and experience every single thing the world had to offer without exception. And in the end... His conclusion was related to that, that it was all meaningless. You see that here in Ecclesiastes 5.10 under the heading, materialism makes you think you never have enough. He says, whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. And then he says, this too is meaningless. I think we all know, intellectually speaking, that money can't buy happiness. But how many of us really honestly are guilty of thinking at times that while we know that, if we could get our hands on just a little bit more money, we might be the exception to the rule. I read recently that Orange County in Southern California is one of the most affluent counties in all of America. And yet, just a few years ago, a survey was done among the residents of Orange County. And one of the questions was, what do you need the most? And the number one answer, by far, the answer people gave more than anything else was, I need more money. If we were to ask the same question in this community or the same question in the community that you live in, my guess is the answer for many would be the same. Yet when we compare our standard of living here with most of the rest of the world, we honestly, regardless of your income level here in the U.S., we have comforts and luxuries that most people around the world only dream about. And yet many of us still think, I need just a little bit more when it comes to money. And the reason why is because that's what materialism, that's what the relentless pursuit of more does to you. It makes you think that whatever you have, it's never enough. The second thing that Solomon teaches us, write this down somewhere, is materialism leads to bad decisions. And I see that in verses 13 and 14. Solomon says, I have seen a grievous evil under the sun. And then he mentions two things. First, he says, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner. And then number two, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when he has a son, there is nothing left to him. He said, I've seen two really bad things, wealth hoarded and wealth lost through foolishness. And so we learn that materialism leads to bad decisions, either the decision to be a hoarder or the decision to be foolish with your money most of the time in an effort to try to get more. And that immediately makes me think of two different passages in the New Testament. The first one comes from Jesus, and it's found in Luke chapter 12. I'm not going to read it, so don't worry about turning there, but we know it as the parable of the rich fool. It's Luke chapter 12, verse 13 through verse 21. Jesus is doing some teaching, and one day uh, a guy speaks up and says, teacher, tell my brother to 
settle the inheritance with me. And so evidently, there were two brothers in the crowd who were arguing over an inheritance. And Jesus immediately responds by saying, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That's what he says. And then he tells this parable about a farmer, remember this story, who had a bumper crop one year. I mean, he harvested more than he'd ever harvested before in his life. And, and he sat back and he said, what am I going to do with all of this? Because my barns aren't big enough to store all of this. And he said, I know what I will do. I will tear down my barns. I will build bigger barns. I will fill up my bigger barns. And then I will take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. You remember that story? Not one single time in Jesus' parable does that farmer with this great blessing give any consideration or acknowledgement to God who is the provider of every good gift and not one single time does he ever think about what he might be able to do to benefit someone else with what he's been blessed with. And as a result, this is how the parable ends. This is Luke chapter 12, verse 20. But God said to him, you fool. Listen, of all the things you want God to call you, fool is not one of them. You fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. And then this question, then who will get what you have prepared? Notice this, for yourself, all that you have hoarded for yourself. And then Jesus adds this final commentary. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, who hoards, but is not rich toward God. And we're rich toward God when we're rich toward the things and the people that God cares about. And so Solomon says, I've seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of the owner. And this rich fool in Jesus' parable is the textbook answer to who that is. The second verse that comes to my mind, and this is related to the second part where he says, I've seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth lost through some misfortune so that when he has a son, there is nothing left for him, is 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 9, where Paul writes these words to Timothy. He says, people who want to get rich, note this, fall into a trap and into, any, into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. And so really what he's saying is that foolish and harmful desires lead oftentimes to foolish and harmful decisions. And the result of foolish, harmful decisions, especially related to finances, is ruin and destruction. Let me ask you a question. You ever seen anybody who ruined their life, destroyed their life because they made bad choices with regard to finances? Oftentimes because they made choices related to trying to get more. I have seen that, friends, over and over again in every single church I've served. Write down a third thing somewhere in your notes. Solomon teaches us that materialism causes you to be selfish. And really we see that in verses 8 and 9, which probably sounded a little bit strange, the first part of the text that we read, but let's look at it again. Uh, Solomon says, if you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied... Do not be surprised at such things, for one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Now, everybody look at me for a minute. He's just talking about a reality of life. In life, there's always going to be a hierarchy of authority, right? Everyone say right. right? I mean, you're, are you the... Are you, are you the 100% in every single aspect of life and living the boss of your life? No. Neither am I. We aren't. There's always going to be 
authority that's higher than us. We're always going to have to answer to someone. We're always going to be, so to speak, under the thumb of someone and their decisions and their will and their desires. And that's what he's talking about here. And he's saying that it's the ones that are higher up. It's the ones in positions of authority who are looking out for themselves first, oftentimes to the neglect of those who are further down the food chain, right? And don't we see that in our, in the reality of our culture and politics and government and different areas of life and living? Materialism causes you to be selfish. Materialism causes you, the relentless pursuit of more causes you to think about yourself first and others second. And that is the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches us. The exact opposite. As believers, we're supposed to look out for the needs of others first, above our own. Not long ago, we did a sermon series here. It was pretty brief, three or four weeks, called The Power of One. We talked about one purpose. We talked about... uh, um, one something, and we talked about one love. I don't think I preached that weekend, so it didn't impress me. I'm just kidding. But when we talked about one love, we talked about how the Bible says that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. that Jesus said, by this will all men know that you're my disciples, if you love one another. And we needed to make sure that was a priority in our lives. And we were looking at 1 John chapter 3. Here's one of the verses we talked about, 1 John 3, 17. John writes and says, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? That's a, that's a convicting verse. When materialism, when the relentless pursuit of more for ourselves causes us to be selfish and ignore the needs of others. And listen, don't think this doesn't describe all of us on some level because it probably does. This is relevant for us. This is relevant every time we pass the offering bag in services. If the pursuit of more for us causes us to neglect the needs of others, then the same question applies. How can the love of God be in us. Materialism, the relentless pursuit of more, causes us to be selfish sometimes because we think first and foremost of ourselves. The final thing that Solomon teaches us in this passage about materialism is materialism keeps you from being healthy and whole. Look at verse 12. Solomon writes and says, the sleep of a laborer is sweet whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. Now, everybody look up here for a moment. Let me tell you what this verse doesn't mean. This verse doesn't mean that if you're rich, there's no way you're going to be able to sleep. That's not what it means. What this verse is saying is that basically the more you have, the more you worry about what you have. And that's especially true if in the pursuit of more, the relentless pursuit of more, you've leveraged yourself to the hilt, you've spent money that you don't have, you're living beyond your means, and you're in a deep, deep hole of debt that you don't think you'll ever be able to climb out of, then there's not going to be any peace in your life. You're not going to be healthy, and you're not going to be whole. This reminds me of another thing that Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6. This time it's verse 10. He says, for the love of money, note this, not money itself. He says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And then he goes on to say, some people eager for money, note this, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. In the original language of the New Testament, that word griefs there is the Greek word lupe. And look at what it means. It means sorrow, pain, and affliction. Now, I don't know about you, but those are not three words that I think of when I think of a healthy life and a whole life. 
not one that's characterized by sorrow, pain, and affliction. Listen, I'm glad I learned a long time ago that no possession in this world can bring you enough pleasure to offset the emotional stress of leveraging your financial life to the point where you have no financial margin in your life. And I didn't learn that the hard way by making a mistake. I've learned that by watching people in every church that I have served experience the disappointment of trying to find happiness in the things of the world. And I've watched it, I've, I've learned it by watching people in every church that I've served living out the nightmare of debt, overwhelming debt, something we'll talk about next week. And so the question we need to ask, having said all that, and we need to do this quickly, is how do we overcome this materialism? Okay, materialism, the relentless pursuit of more, that's normal in the world that we live in, even among Christians, but that's, that's an area in life where normal isn't working. So how do we overcome that? Well, we have to ask ourselves, what's the opposite of materialism? What's the opposite of the relentless pursuit for more? And I've got two words that I'll try to go through quickly. The first one is the word contentment. Contentment is the opposite of materialism. The Bible makes that clear. Look at these words on the screen from Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5. Read them with me. Let me hear your voices. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Great words. Now, what a lot of people don't understand, Hebrews is a little bit of a mysterious book in that we don't know who the author was. I mean, some people speculate, but nobody knows for certain who the author was. And one of the things that people don't always realize about the book of Hebrews is it was written in part to a group of believers who were beginning to experience persecution for their faith. And they had an interesting response to that persecution. As a result of the persecution for their faith in Christ, many of them were starting to revert back to their Old Testament faith, to a faith that was based on the law of Moses and the Old Covenant and things like that. And that's why, if you're familiar with the book of Hebrews, you read through the book of Hebrews and this unmistakable theme is that Jesus is better than everything. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the Old Testament law. Jesus is better than the high priest system and all those things. Why? Don't go back to that. Jesus is better. Now, when you read the book of Hebrews from that standpoint, that it was written to people who are starting to experience persecution in their life, then it gives a little bit of new meaning. And when you read the words, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. You can almost see the writer saying this, listen, I know persecution has come and I know persecution can be devastating in many ways and one of them is financially. Because of persecution, you can lose your job. If you're a merchant, because of persecution, you can lose your customers and you can wake up one day and you have nothing. But here's what you do in light of that. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have and always remember that no matter what happens to you, God will always be with you. And those words tell us that the key to contentment is not focusing your attention on things like wealth or the things that wealth can buy, but you keep your attention focused on a relationship with an unchanging, eternal, and faithful God. That's the foundation of contentment, your relationship and your trust in an unchanging, eternal, faithful God. That's got to be way more important to you and to me as believers than anything that the world has to offer. Now, the second word, and you know what, and we have to really be on our guard of that because discontentment creeps into our lives in, in crazy, irrational ways sometimes. Have you ever noticed that? 
I was thinking about that this week, and I thought, you, 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 would, you would not think that somebody who at one time in their life had a church that only had 30 people in it, and I'm talking about myself now, you wouldn't think that somebody who at one time in their life had a church of only 30 people would ever feel discontent with a church the size of this one. But if I'm honest today, I'll tell you that sometimes I do. I mean, I, I have friends who are pastors. They have churches that are large and churches that are growing. It seems like their stories are always more powerful. And sometimes, you know, that gets into your head and envy creeps into your heart. And Proverbs 14.30 says, a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. And so it just teaches us that discontentment is irrational. It can creep in our lives in a lot of different ways, but you can't let that happen. I can't let that happen. That's foolishness. We have to make sure the foundation of our life is our personal relationship with an unchanging, eternal, and faithful God. That trumps everything else. The second word is the word generosity, and Brian and the team can come and we'll get ready to close. Generosity, just like contentment, at least in my mind, is the opposite of materialism because generosity changes the focus of our hearts from ourselves to others, and that, listen, when the focus of our heart is not on ourselves, it's on others, that is in complete harmony with what the Bible teaches. In the world, the focus of our lives is on ourselves. That seems normal, but that's where the Bible teaches just the opposite. Look at these words from Paul in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. And then he says, Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let's just close by being really practical for a moment when it comes to generosity. You know what? I'm committed. I'm deeply committed to generosity when it comes to the ministry of this church for three reasons, and, and, and not just myself, but my wife, Sandy, and I. I think you should be too. And the first reason is because the Bible commands us to be generous. First Timothy, we'll go back to First Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 17. We read verse 17 again, but let's read verses 17 through verse 19. Paul says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. And then he goes on to say, command. Everyone say command. Command. Look what he says next. Them to do good, to be right in good deeds, and to be generous this is a command of the Scripture, to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is true life. Now, that passage begins with the words, command those who are rich in this present world. And I understand that some of you might think that doesn't describe me, but you're wrong. I'm just telling you, you're wrong. Here's the only qualification Paul gives. He says, command those who are rich in this present world. Do you know that if you have an annual income of at least $32,400, that you are among the top 1% of income earners in all the world? All the world. Strictly speaking, according to the way this verse is worded, you and me, we are those who are rich in this present world, and the Bible commands us to be generous. The second reason why we're deeply committed to generosity 
through the ministry of Mount Pleasant Christian Church is because we know that this church makes an impact on the lives of people in need every single day. I've got an unbelievably long list in front of me of all the different things Mount Pleasant does, all the different ministry things it does locally and globally. And it's just, I don't have time to read it all or to look at it. But let me just ask you this. What is it that stirs your heart? What needs in the world today stirs your heart? Planning churches? We do that. We fund that. How about making sure that every people group on the planet all around the globe has the opportunity to have the Bible in their language? Does that stir your heart? We do that. We fund that. You know, we are fully, as a church, we are fully funding the translation of the Bible into the language of the single largest remaining unreached people group in the world. We do that. That's what happens when you put money in the offering bag or when you give online, or however you do it every week? How about providing food, water, and medical care for people in need? Does that stir your heart? We do that. Training pastors to lead churches in different corners of the world, we do that. How about women who are caught in sex trafficking and sex slavery? Does that stir your heart? We contribute to rescuing those women Every dollar that we give to India is used in part to rescue women from that kind of a horrific life. Or children. Think about the children that you dropped off in Bibleopolis this morning. I think about my grandkids for a moment. Places around the world like India, some of those children are sold into slavery, a lifetime of slavery for a bag of rice. What stirs your heart? Helping people break a cycle of poverty. Helping women who are caught in a dark world of exploitation find somebody who loves them and gives them a new different opportunity for hope, a new future. How about making sure that children in local elementary schools and middle schools have the opportunity once a week before school starts to hear the truth of the scriptures in Bible club. We're certainly not the only church in this community that volunteers to Bible club, but we have a line item in our budget to fund what happens every single week. And think about this, for some of those children, that will be in their lives the only opportunity they have to hear the truth of the scriptures because they're not in families that go to church. I could go on and on and on. What is it that stirs your heart? We're a part of that. The ministry of this church, when I talk to you about changing the world, I'm not just using a catchy phrase. We're a part of that every week. And the third reason why we're committed to being generous through the ministry of Mount Pleasant Christian Church, and I want you to listen to me closely, because the Bible teaches us clearly that when we're generous with God, he is generous with us. Proverbs 3, 9, and 10 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth, but the first fruits of all your crops, then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. A little later, Proverbs eleven twenty five says, A generous man, a generous man will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. I believe in those things, and I'm telling you, friends, I've experienced the reality of the promises of those verses over over and over again in my life. In some ways, I experience the promise of those verses every single day of my life. And so I believe in being generous with God because when we are generous with God, he is generous with us. And so the question for us this morning, and this is how we'll close, we'll just put on the screen and phrase it like this. When it comes to life and handling the money God has trusted to us, am I going to be normal or am I going to be faithful? Because normal 
isn't working. Thank you, Lord, for a chance to talk about these things today, and I pray you would convict our hearts right at the point of our need. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.